0: I'm going to talk to the singles for a little while. (laughs) Are there any here? May I see your hands? (laughs) Well, judging by the piles of letters that I receive on this subject, I deduce that almost all young women are quite naturally longing for love. As a college girl, so was I. Few men are as eager as women are to seek a mate. Might as well put that in your pipe and smoke it, you know, because (laughs) it's true, they're they're much less eager. Many women write long letters to me explaining how they first met, how they first saw a certain young man and, quote, felt at once that this was the man the Lord had picked out for them. Perhaps he was. And perhaps he wasn't. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Letters to Malcolm, describes faith as the state of mind which desperate desire, working on a strong imagination, can manufacture. This is not faith in a Christian sense. It is a feat of psychological gymnastics. Now, it's not my prerogative, of course, to tell my correspondents that they are mistaken as to God's choice. I do get lots of letters from women telling me that that the Lord has shown them that this man is going to be their husband, and sometimes many years go by and the man is not their husband yet, so they're mistaken probably as to God's choice. She might possibly be right, and she hopes that I will be able to confirm her strong suspicion. It is my job, however, to remind her that, quote, according to Psalm 119, 165, peace is the reward of those who love thy law. The peace of Jesus was God's gift to him because he had no desire to do anything but the will of the Father. He had no desire but to do the will of his Father. Now, we must always remember that if we have, that we have a Heavenly Father who knows far better than we do what is best for us. Marriage is a wonderful gift, if given. It's not by any means given to everyone. Sometimes, perhaps, it is merely taken without much thought or prayer. God has given abundant promises in his word to lead and guide those who seek him ponder Psalm 84, verses 11 and 12. The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Now you need to remember that. God is not withholding something from you. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Now what God knows is good for you may not by any means be what you think is good for yourself. His wisdom far outshines ours, and only he can judge which things are, for any given individual, truly good. Only God knows if marriage is a good thing for you. So trust and obey, for there's no other way, and proceed quietly to do his will today. This is the crucial thing. You only have today. Yesterday is gone. Tomorrow is not here yet. You have today. The Lord led the Israelites all the way in the desert for 40 years to humble them and to test them in order to know what was in their hearts, whether they would keep his commands, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna. It says in Deuteronomy 8, 2, and 3. The people got tired of the food he had given them, and they were convinced that he was withholding the best. Are you clinging to a similar conviction, that God is withholding the best? If you are single today, thank God for it. Do today's work you don't have tomorrow. Lamentations 3.26 says, it is good that a woman, that a man, it says in the King James Bible, but I think it's legitimate to put the word woman in there. It is good that a woman should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Don't go after a man. Let God bring the right man at the right time if marriage is in his plan for you remember that he loves you with an everlasting love and he has drawn you with loving kindness says in Jeremiah 31:3 I want to ask you do you believe that God is trustworthy Now can you repeat the following words honestly I am willing to receive what you send to do without what you withhold, to relinquish what you take, to suffer what you assign, to do what you command, to be what you ask me to be, at any cost, now and forever. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. You may still think that God is withholding something that you need, but of course the truth is that God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Now do try to remember, my dear friends, that peace comes with acceptance. Amy Carmichael wrote that great motto, in acceptance lies peace. And if you don't have a husband today, This is all that matters. You don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow. You've already left off what happened yesterday. So be, be at peace and say, yes, Lord. And of course, it's legitimate to talk to the Lord and say, well, Lord, you know how much I would love to be married and such and such a man looks like just exactly the kind of a person I would like to have. And Lord, if there's some way that you could arrange to bring us together, you can talk like that if you want to. But in the, middle, in the meantime, one day at a time, remember, in acceptance lies peace. And I have truly found it so in my long life. To be able to say, as Mary did, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Or in today's English, we might say, here I am, Lord. Do anything you want with me. Are you willing to say that? Are you willing to trust God for that? Well, it cheers me to have a letter from one who is very earnest about following the will of God, as this person was. Thank you for your letter. It's so good to know that you have a God-inspired hunger in your heart for missions and that you are aware that he has been preparing you glad to know that your perspectives are changing and that you pray regularly about God's direction. Because of all this, I don't hesitate to suggest that there would be nothing wrong with your simply choosing one of the fields in which you've been interested. And again, I get lots of letters from young people who are honest and earnest about wanting to be foreign missionaries, but they're sort of on dead center because there's so many options as to places to which they might go. And so I would simply suggests that you choose one of the fields in which you've been interested. And if that's not the one that God wants to send you to, then surely he knows how to arrange things according to his mercy. Now God's guidance does involve making choices. He doesn't give us pillars of fire, pillars of fire and stars of Bethlehem, or handwriting on the wall to guide us unmistakably. He has ordained that we seek his will and also exercise our intelligence as well as our wills. Jim Elliott corresponded with one missionary in India and one in Ecuador. As far as I know, those are the only two missionaries with whom he corresponded, just assuming that God would be able to tell him which one of those two he should follow. And he was seeking to determine determine which field he should go to. So in view of the information that he received, he simply made a choice, Ecuador. But he, like you, had done a lot of thinking and praying. It was not a shot in the dark, it was an act of faith in a God who promises to guide You ask if you should wait until you have a specific call. Well, it sounds to me as though you have been called to missionary service. A call is a combination of desire, concern, and commandment. A commitment, excuse me. A call is a combination of desire, concern, and commitment. It sounds to me as though you have all three. Jim used to say, you can't steer a parked car, so Jim just took took it for granted that he was supposed to move if God was moving him and certainly turned out that God was indeed moving him to South America. It makes sense to move in the direction that you believe God is leading, trusting him as a faithful shepherd to lead you in paths of righteousness for his not for your sake. Will he make it hard for his obedient sheep to discover his will? Well, certainly not. And if you're steering your car in the wrong direction, you can count on Isaiah 30, verse 21. You can look that up later, Isaiah 30, verse 21. Both moving and waiting are required. But you have waited. It's time to move. And probably there will be more waiting. God be with you, friend. I know that he will. I enclose a little prayer card, which I hope will encourage you, and a brochure with information about my book on God's guidance. And I have written a book called God's Guidance, uh, discovering the relationship between God's mercy and our pain. No, I don't think that's the right reference with the Book on God's Guidance. That's in another part of my manga, my little notebook here. I get things turned around sometimes. Now, I was just sort of assuming that there would be a few people in this audience, and I'm not expecting you to come and talk to me about it or uh, say anything, but I'm just assuming that there would be some godly single women who are eager to follow the will of God, even if it means a tough assignment in a foreign mission. I have three questions that I ask single people. Number one, what do you want? Number two, how will you get it? Number three, what will it cost you? Now, Jesus calls us o'er the tumult of our life's wild, restless sea. Day by day, his sweet voice soundeth, saying, Christian, follow me. And we do have to get up and follow him. He's not going to do it all for you. Are you looking for marriage first? Are you looking for money? Do you want to be a disciple? When I went to Ecuador, I had no guarantee that I was ever going to be the the wife of Jim Elliott. I went to Ecuador, did what I needed to do in learning the language, and then I moved to the, eastern, to the western jungle, way over from the Andes, where Jim Elliott was working. And I was working with two British women, both of whom were single. And it was a very difficult year. It was also a wonderful year in many ways. My question is, do you really want to be a disciple? And you have to be honest about this. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you must give up your right to yourself and take up the cross and follow me. And those are stiff terms. Do you really honestly, deep down in your heart, want to be his his disciple? Well, somebody says to me, but that's scary. I don't know what God's likely to do to me. My answer always is, God is never going to do anything to you that isn't for you. Remember that. It's got to be a commitment to the will of God. Give up your right to yourself. It's the very first condition of discipleship. If you're not ready to do that, you're not ready to follow Jesus at all. You must give up your right to yourself because that's the toughest of all the three things. If you've done that, then you can take up the cross which means the continual daily practice of small duties which are distasteful to us and then the third thing is follow and the Lord knows the way through the wilderness all we have to do is follow and there have been many times in my years as a missionary when I had no idea where God was going to send me next And it had to be day by day one foot in the front of the next one and just trusting trusting god so those of you who are single are you willing to accept today that fact that unavoidable fact you are single and when i think of the hundreds and thousands of single women missionaries that I've heard about, and some of them, many of them, I've met personally. Of course, Amy Carmichael was one of the great icons in my life. Amy Carmichael believed before she was 20 years old that God had told her that she was not to marry. And so there was never any question in her mind that God had something else for her to do. She didn't know what it was, but of course she became the mother of about a thousand children. Little children, little boys and girls, who were put in the temples for the pur- purposes of prostitution sometimes when they're little helpless infant babies and these little children would be kept for the use of those who were bowing in their heads in the temple the terrible uh, temples of India Amy Carmichael could not could not have possibly known what God was going to ask her to do because she'd never even heard of such a thing as these small children being given to the Hindu temples. And just for your information, some of you have never heard of Amy Carmichael, it goes on. She died back in 1952, I think it was, having been there without a furlough from 1895. Never went back to her homeland. But since then, it has been carried on by Indian women who have given themselves for the rescue of these precious little children. It is a beautiful place. Lars and I have been there. It's just a peaceful, happy home for those children. So I just recommend these things to you, hoping that you're going to recognize that it just might be that God is putting his finger on you. You are single, and so he says, will you follow me to such and such a place? And he may not tell you right away where or when that is. Now, Lars suggested that I talk a little bit about prayer. And prayer, of course, has always been a very wonderful topic that I like to talk about. But before before I go on to that, I think I have a whole page here that I meant to give or did I do that one? Yeah. Yes, I have done that one. This is seven questions seven reasons why God says no. Number 1 for the sake of others. God frequently says no things which we think would be so wonderful to have. Christ was on the cross and he was not permitted to come back down. He put himself totally at the disposal of his Heavenly Father. He did this for the sake of other people. And the story of Paul's thorn, I trust you remember Paul had all kinds of shipwrecks, all kinds of trials and tribulations, but the thing that really just about undid him was the thorn that God gave him. And so he had to put up with this very difficult thing in his life. He had been a faithful servant of God. He had gone through all kinds of trials and tribulations. And yet it was this one tiny little thorn that made it almost impossible for, for him to praise the Lord at the beginning. But it's wonderful how he accepts. And here I am turning the pages to find that part. He boasted about his sufferings in 2 Corinthians 11. And this is, I'll just read a part of this long catalog of all the things that he did. He said, He uh, said, I am out of my mind to talk like this. I have worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I have been flogged more severely. I have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger from the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Now after all of that, then in verse in chapter twelve of Second Corinthians, he says, To keep me from coming becoming conceited. Because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now who do you think sent Satan as a messenger? It had to be God. There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said... My grace is all you need, for power comes to its full strength in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions. Think about these trials and tribulations that God allows to all sorts of godly people and some of the godliest people that I've ever known have been the people who have been through the deepest waters imaginable. It is in those ways that the Lord seems to perfect us so that we will be able to enter heaven. But those of you who are really longing for love may I just urge you to lay it on the altar and remember you only have this one day. That is such a comfort to me. It's a comfort to me for other reasons. Of course, I have a husband, and there are other reasons why I'm comforted. But it is necessary for us to recognize the love of God even in the things which seem utterly apart from anything that you could have called love. I think of Amy Carmichael. I think of dear Miss Cumming. She was a little, short, dumpy lady who was the, hit, the head of our dormitory when I was a student at, Gordon, at, at, at Wheaton College, And somehow or other, she and I became rather close friends in a strange way. I was much taller than she was. I think she was up about here to my uh, shoulder. And she had come from a very, very wealthy home in the South. And I didn't really know much of anything about her except that she had lived in one of those beautiful columned homes in Georgia, and they had servants in the back and white columns in the front. But her family completely sent her away because she had become a Christian. She never told me what she did immediately thereafter, but she must have been about 50 or so, 52 maybe, when she was a house mother at Wheaton College. And I would go and talk to her in her room and sometimes pour out my trials and my tribulations. And one day she shared with me one of her trials and tribulations. She said, oh, Betty." She always called me Betty. Lots of people called me that back then. She said, I came to Wheaton to be a spiritual counselor, but here I am carrying mops and toilet paper across the campus. (laughs) Well, you know, that made a deep impression upon me because I knew that she had come from a very wealthy home and had had to give it all up, and she was humble enough to be willing to carry mops and toilet paper across the campus. Years later, when I, my second husband and I were in Florida one time, we went to visit her in her retirement home. And I just had such a wonderful time with her again. Once again, here she was, probably a little bit <laughs> shorter than she was the last time. And she. I told her what it had meant to me to know that she was willing to do that simple, humble job. And she said, oh, (laughs) Betty, did I really say that? And I said, yes, she said, what what did I really say that was, just think of the mercy of God, that he allowed me to carry mops and toilet paper for his glory." Now that made an indelible imprint in my life. One more icon, one more single woman, who showed me the life of Jesus. She was just another one of the many. Let me see who else I can tell you about. Single women, my heart does go out to you and I pray for you and I pray for the men that I know who are not yet married. And it just seems to me that back when my father was planning to get married, it was immediately after he graduated from college and he made up his mind that he was going to marry that beautiful woman that he had seen across the table one time in somebody's house. And he just went down that pathway like a thunderbolt. And he got her. But it wasn't all that easy. But nowadays, it looks as though men are not even thinking about getting married until they get into their late 20s, late 30s, and sometimes in their 40s. And about that time, then they start looking for a wife. And she may be 15 or 20 years younger than they are. And this is a sad thing. I and mean, There isn't anything that I can do about it. But I just do want to encourage you to believe that God knows exactly what he's doing. Whose are you? What do you want? How will you get it? What will it cost you? And the Lord Jesus is saying, do you want to be a disciple? Remember the story that Jesus tells about the rich young man. He wanted to follow Jesus until he found out how hard that was going to be. At that point, he decided that it was really too high a price. But a true disciple does not ask how little, or how, but how much. How much do you love him? How much are you willing to accept? I get letters from young women who, in some ways, would love to become missionaries, but they're so scared and they think how awful it would be if they had to work in some godforsaken jungle. What if they had to work alone? Well there were times when I was alone as well and I can attest, I can testify to the faithfulness of God as he saw me through those difficult times. Now a word on why God says no and this is something that Lars suggested that I mention. I do frequently talk about prayer, and I've distilled some of the reasons why God says no into seven things. Number one, God says no for the sake of others. And if Jesus had come down from the cross, we would have not had the Savior that we have. When I think about... Jim Elliot, why did God say no about letting Jim be a husband to me and my daughter? Of course, he was a husband, but it was for a very short time. So God says no. Paul's thorn, to Paul's thorn, God says no. Number two, for God's glory among his people. And in Numbers 20, verse 12, it says that Moses could not enter Canaan because of his glory, which had been uh, dragged in the dust, as it were. So this very faithful servant of his, Moses, was not permitted to enter the Canaan land. Now, number three. One of the very obvious reasons why God might say no to you is because he has something better. Remember in the New Testament where it says if a son asks for a piece of bread, his father's not going to give him a stone. If he asks for an egg, he's not going to be given a scorpion. God says no for his his own purposes and his own reasons. Number four, God says no, because we are harboring sin. And we need to be very careful about that. If we wonder why our petitions don't seem to be coming back from the ceiling, it may be that that we are harboring sin. Number five, it could be that we are not asking in his name in the book of James, verse 4 and 1 to 4, let me read that. Hebrews. Hebrews 4, number 4, he says, or I'll read 1 to 4, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God." Pretty stiff reasons, aren't they? Then number six, God says no for reasons of his own, which we need not know. I had the privilege of sitting on a sofa one time with that amazing little woman called Gladys Aylward, a London parlor maid. And we were talking about how God answers prayer and what it's like to be single on the mission field. And she was single in China for many, many years, longer than I was in Ecuador. But on that particular occasion, we were talking about men. And I was a widow then, and Gladys Aylward had discovered that there was an English couple working not too far away from where she was and she, as she observed them she realized that they had something very wonderful that she would love to have which was a marriage and so Gladys Aylward being a woman of no nonsense she decided to ask God to choose a man in England and send him straight out there to China and have him propose. <laughs> now. She was a no-nonsense person, believe me. And as we sat there on that sofa, I on one end and she on the other, she wagged her tiny little bony finger at me and she said, Elizabeth, I believe God answers prayer. He called him, but he never came. I wonder what happened to that man. I dare say God dealt with him, all right. (laughs) But as she went, went, went on telling her story, amazing, incredible things that had happened to her in China, she just said, Lord God, you know what you're doing. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that the Lord God knows what he's doing? Is he cheating you of something that you think you should have? Will you love him? Will you trust him? Will you praise him? And the seventh reason why God says no is in order to lead us not into temptation. And I can remember thinking about that because we said the the Lord's Prayer every single day at home. And I thought, why would God lead us into temptation? Well, here God is telling us specifically that we should ask him not to lead us into temptation. So we're allowed to ask for things like that. A man named F. W. Robertson said that that prayer which does not succeed in moderating our wish, in changing the passionate desire into still submission, the anxious tumultuous expectation into silent surrender, is no true prayer. That life is most holy in which there is least of petition and desire, and most of waiting on God." Another man by the name of Charles Brent, who was born in 1862, said, prayer is not so much the means whereby God's will is bent to man's desires, as it is that whereby man's will is bent to God's desires. I'll read that again. Prayer is not so much the means whereby God's will is bent to ours, our desires, as it is that whereby man's will is bent to God's desires. One of the words about prayer as I was praying and trying to learn what the Lord was trying to teach me about it, these words came to me. Prayer is an absolute transfer of my will to God. No matter what things are roiling inside me and all kinds of things that are making me feel upset and confused, it is an absolute transfer of my will to God. Are you prepared to say, Lord, here I am, all of me for you forever. Do anything you want with me, without saying, but that's scary. I don't know what he might do to me. C.S. Lewis said, the state of mind which desperate desire, working on a strong imagination, can manufacture is not faith in a Christian sense. It is a feat of psychological gymnastics. It must refer to a degree or kind of faith which most believers never experience. A far inferior degree is, I hope, acceptable to God. Now, I do have a couple of things that I would like to read to you if you are in any way thinking about the possibility of missions. I'd ask this question. Number one, how do I know that God has called me? And that was a very difficult question for me. I just kept thinking. I was always thinking about going to the mission field, but I kept scratching my head and thinking, how will I ever know if God has called me? The call to missions often starts with curiosity, and I'm sure that there probably be many people in this audience this afternoon who have been on at least one missions trip somewhere. So the call to missions often starts with curiosity. Maybe you enjoyed that time, learned a few things, and you could come back and scratch your head a little bit more and wonder if maybe God might not be calling you to be a missionary. Then curiosity leads to interest. My interest urges me to gather information, and I get understanding. As I better understand the scope and meaning of missions, God will give assurance that this is a real possibility for me. As I share my assurance with others, look into the Bible, and pray for the Holy Spirit's leading, it will become a conviction. Conviction will bring me to commitment And now there is no retreat. That's called A Missionary's Call. I didn't write it. Somebody else did, but I think it's very useful. A woman by the name of Lilius Trotter was a missionary to North Africa. She came from a very wealthy London home, and she was in North Africa for the rest of her life after she was a young uh, woman in her 20s. And she was always asking questions of herself, being a single woman, things like this. Is the aim of our ministry to these people measured by the pattern given in St. Paul's epistles? Are we fulfilling in our own souls the conditions for blessing that God has laid down? And Amy Carmichael whose dates are 1867 to 1951, I think I said 52 before, I think it's 51, founder of the Donovore Fellowship. She would ask very succinct questions to those who thought that they would like to come out and work with her. So the first one was, do you truly desire to live a crucified life? This may mean doing very humble things joyfully for his namesake and the very humble things that she was usually referring to was all these tiny little babies that they had to take uh, care of and amy herself said i must have cut tens of thousands of tiny little fingernails and tiny little toenails she said does the thought of hardness draw or repel you do you love unity and loyalty what does the, Lord, the word loyalty mean to you? Do you realize that we are a family, not an institution? In our work for our children and others, we all cooperate as need arises. And she would not have anybody coming who specifically said, I will do this kind of work, I will not do that kind. Everybody who went there had to be prepared to do the dirtiest job or the top most difficult job. I think these are insightful questions. Can you mention any experience that you have passed through in your Christian life, which brought you into a new discovery of your union with the crucified, risen, and enthroned Lord? My advice, if I'm allowed to give you one more word of advice from off the top of my head, if you are in any way at all, thinking about being a missionary, praise God. I can never thank God enough for the tremendous privilege that it was to be a missionary for what turned out to be only 11 years. But I am so grateful for that. And one of the hymns that I often clung to back in those days was, If thou but suffer God to guide thee, and hope in him through all thy ways, he'll do thee good, whate'er betide thee and bear thee through the evil days, who trusts in God's unchanging love, builds on a rock that naught can prove. Will you earnestly go to prayer, you single women, and just say, Lord, do you want me? Do you want me to be a missionary or whatever? God bless you.